This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. So I know there's a lot of buzz and interest around agroforestry and food forests these days, but do you really know what the difference is between an orchard and a food forest? Or how to choose the right species for your climate and soil conditions? How about companion plants in the various strata of a forest? And if you're looking to make money and sell products, how can you make a business plan and calculate expenses and profit from a system that could take years to mature? Luckily, my friend Jacob Evans and I will be covering all of that and more in our upcoming course on profitable syntropic agroforestry. In the beautiful setting of the Spanish coastal mountains, Jacob and I will take you through the practical learning experience of designing and planning all the way to putting plants in the ground for a profitable syntropic agroforestry enterprise. Early registration discounts are now open for this five-day course from April 13th through the 18th, and because of COVID precautions, spots are limited, so be sure to register right away. Just follow the link on the website or our link tree on Instagram for all of the details. Now, if, on the other hand, you already know what you want to plant and have a design ready to go, I can help you out there too. If your project is located anywhere in continental Europe, you can get the trees you're thinking of planting and a group of volunteers to help you out to get them in the ground absolutely free. I've connected with the team at Life Terra to help them reach their goal of growing 500 million trees all over Europe in the next couple of years. It's an ambitious goal and we need your help. Whether you're aiming for reforestation, planning an orchard business, adding perennial alleyways or hedges to your farm, or simply inspired to plant a food forest in your backyard, we can help make your project happen with free trees and planting support. So if you sign up through the link on the website, I'll also offer a free project consultation to make sure that you get started with a good plan and understand how the process works. Just fill out the information through the link and let's get planting. Hello and welcome back, everybody. Now, I've got a good friend of mine, Philip Berker, here, the co-founder of Climate Farmers, who's going to help me out with the introduction. Go ahead, Phil. Hey, guys. Uh, pleasure to be here. Uh, today, we want to kick off a series of episodes that focus on the often overlooked necessity of building resilient and healthy communities. This aspiration is as nuanced and complex as the natural environments we work in. And what human communities are directly connected to and an essential part of these environments we also have a disproportionate ability to affect the resources, energy flows, and even the cycles and life and deaths of the other organisms we share the space with. So a major element in any environmental project should be the social and communal influences nearby. And I've been fortunate enough to take part in and assist many projects around the world at different scales and with different focuses. And I can confidently say that the ones that I've watched progress with the most tenacity and resilience are those that took the time and made the effort to collaborate with their local community members and include them in the decision-making process. And it's true that most of these projects got off to a slow start initially because they weren't putting all of their resources into project implementation and work on the ground. Over time, however, I've watched them flourish into impactful gathering spaces of inspiration, connection, and hope. And I've also heard time and time again on the interviews on this show and from some of the people that I most admire that investing in your community is the best use of your resources and time. Ultimately, if you aspire to create a project that stands the test of time, investing in relationships and social capital is always a wise choice. In that spirit, we reached out to a good friend and regular contributor to this show, Zach Weiss. Zach is best known as a protege of revolutionary Austrian farmer Zepp Holzer and founder of Elemental Ecosystems a company that designs and implements water harvesting landscapes and features for clients all around the world. He's now launching a new online learning community, 
centered around the exchange and promotion of knowledge around the regeneration of landscape hydrology, called Water Stories. Oliver was fortunate enough to get an early look at the educational videos, mini-documentaries and animations that Zach will be releasing in the coming months. And we highly encourage you all to sign up to the link on the show notes for this episode and keep an eye out for those resources as they come out. Now, in today's episode, we're going to be taking a different approach to the previous interviews that I've done with Zach that focus more on the practical steps for understanding landscapes and intervening to restore their hydrological function. In this one, we're going to be shining a light on some of the most impressive and impactful water restoration projects from around the world and the catalysts that brought communities together to advance projects that have transformed entire ecosystems and the lives within them as a result. Now, these stories span the globe and a wide spectrum of context. They illustrate the power of collaboration, especially when resources are scarce and institutional support is non-existent or even antagonistic. If you've ever held back from starting an ambitious goal that had the potential to heal massive areas of land because you couldn't get the money or political backing, then listen closely to this session because it just might be the inspiration that you have been waiting for. And from there, we'll hand things over now to Zach Weiss. So, Zach, uh, let's start from the beginning with an introduction on water stories. You and I have had a couple of interviews on this podcast now before, and you've hinted at the possibility of coming out with this platform for a long time. It looks like the time has finally come. Uh, I know that this education community has been a long time in the making. What can we start to expect? Yeah, it's been a fun, wild, twisty, turny journey. Uh, what we're really creating is an online community for water restoration practitioners, a place for people to learn about the water cycle, to learn about water cycle restoration, the issues that we face and all of the solutions, for people to get really inspired and excited by all of the examples. We have all these leaders from all around the world that have shown us a way to heal the earth. They've done it. They, it exists on the ground. So we're really trying to bring these stories to the masses. Uh, so we'll be starting with some animations that we'll actually release uh, on the 16th, uh, probably have released already by the time this is released. Then for every week, we're going to be releasing a new bit of content. Some of these are short videos. Some of these are full on films um, about different stories. And then that will build to the launch of our core course, which is really a course designed to train people to gain all of the skills that someone like myself has or a Sepp Holtz or, or Rajendra Singh so that by the time you complete this course, you feel really confident and prepared to actually come in and bring water back to landscape, to revive, to regenerate landscapes and be able to really help others and yourself move forward um, with making the world a better place. Well, like you were just mentioning, there are some really inspiring stories that you can already point to to show that this is possible. And you've got that series out on water heroes. Can you give me some of the profiles of people, especially who have done larger projects and leverage the power of community to really transform the hydrology of their area? Yeah, these big projects are all about community. So I think the best example is uh, the work in India with Rajendra Singh and Tarun Bharat Song, where they've revived seven rivers to perennial flow that had gone dry. They've restored 250,000 wells. They've reduced the temperature two degrees Celsius. And they did this by acting as a community, by starting these community water councils where all of the individuals in a certain village came together. They discussed what issues they had going on with water, what resources they had. And then 
Tarun brought Song helped facilitate some solutions. So these communities, one by one, year by year, started implementing water retention, the traditional water retention of the region. And it eventually impacted over a million people, causing reverse migration uh, back to the countryside because now agriculture was viable, the homelands were productive. And this is just one story. You look at Zephaniah Fury in Africa, where he started very much in a silo. He was you know, fired, told that he couldn't work anymore, had to still produce food for his family. And so he figured out a way to do that by planting the rain and then using that planted rain to grow vegetation. Lo and behold, the water sources started coming back. And again, people in the community started seeing it, started gaining steam, and it started spreading throughout the whole region. Um, and so we see time and time again, these big, large-scale changes when you're talking about people from not having water, not having agriculture, not being able to viably live on their landscape and having to flee, having to migrate for work. Now they have everything they need. They have water, they have agriculture, they have a future for the young people in the village. And it's always accomplished by community action, by communities coming together, having shared values, shared goals, and then taking actions to move in those steps. I really love these examples because they fly in the face of many of the sticking points that I hear from all kinds of communities, even clients that I've had in the past where they think that they can't get anything meaningful done for a lack of money, mostly, or a lack of access to resources or machinery or it might be. And we're talking about some of the poorest communities around the world and almost no money to work with much less any machinery, how did they accomplish things at this scale without those resources? Just, you know, slow, steady steps in the same direction. Uh, you know, Zephaniah's work is in, a great example because a lot of it just comes down to these fury pits where they're just making holes in the ground for water to infiltrate into the ground. When we've degraded our landscape so that it's rejecting all of the rainfall, there's no chance for that fertility to infiltrate. So just by making, he calls them immigration centers, where he takes the rain and immigrates it into the ground, welcomes it into the ground. Um, and so, you know, this is simple, simple stuff. We're talking a pickaxe and a shovel, or even just a digging stick that you can do this work with. So absolutely, I think it's easy, especially for people who are a little bit, you know, more well off in a global sense to say, oh, we don't have the resources to do that. Oh, we don't have the abilities to do that. And, you know, a lot of it just comes out of laziness or in confidence in being able to take those actions. But these people who need to, to drink tomorrow, to eat tomorrow, we see time and time again that they're willing and able to take these steps. And, you know, even if it's just a community digging up soil, putting it in baskets on their head, and then carrying it by hand up to slowly build a dam, these actions pay off, even if you're doing it on a human scale. So it's something that we all can do, no matter what resources we have. If you have a body that can move around, these are things you can do. Yeah, and it really comes back to that community aspect is, you know, one person doing these is going to take forever to make much of an impact on a landscape scale. But the tenacity and the collaboration that brings communities together when they can see that the effects of their actions are really going to have bigger effects for the livelihoods of everybody around 
it really seems to, to tap into something primal that humans have, all of us have within us that can bring us together and accomplish amazing things. That's what I really love about working with water is you see the results so quickly. The first rainy season, you see the results. So people can get excited. They can move forward. They can have confidence in their actions. And so we see, you know, they scale really slowly because people believe in what they see. They don't believe in what they hear anymore. You can find any information out there on the internet, anything you're looking for. So it's hard to know what's true and what's not. But when you see it on the ground and in reality, it's very plainly and abundantly clear. And so we see it big time with Rajendra's work where, you know, he started building the first Johad, the first water body alone. He was a doctor digging in the soil. Everyone was making fun of him, laughing at him. You know, he was doing something far below his own class. Eventually, some people started joining and helping, but still not many. But then when the first monsoons came, the Johad filled, but then the well downstream of the Johad that had been dry was recharged with water. That's when everyone said, oh, maybe we should do this. If we want water to drink next year, if we want water for agriculture, we should do what they did. And so whereas it went very slow in the first years because there were very few examples, 10, 15 years in, it started gaining steam really quickly because now there were all these examples people could go see and it started spreading like wildfire throughout the region. And we see the same thing with our projects. When people don't know what's possible, they don't know to move in this direction, but we do a project, the neighbors see that, they go, oh, wow, now they have water when we're still bone dry over here or our property burned and their property didn't. And these are really strong incentives to then move in that direction. Now, I know that you're fairly well known for doing these larger scale projects uh, on people's farms or, you know, with a lot of machinery. You've, you've been using backhoes and diggers and stuff in, in a lot of your examples. But there are so many small things that people can do on a small scale as well with like basic tools that you had mentioned. Can you talk about some of the techniques that you have seen really effective without much technology or resources? Yeah, for me, it ultimately boils down to going outside when it rains and watching what happens. When that water drop is meeting the soil, is it being received by the soil? Is it being rejected by the soil? If it's being rejected by the soil, what can we do to help the soil receive that water drop? So it may be something as simple as establishing more vegetation so that the soil is not exposed and hot and hard when the rains do come. It has those root systems of the plants to be able to actually move down into the soil instead of just running off. So treating the soil, the catchment areas is really important. And then we've also taken so much space away from water. So how can we give space to water? You know, we've drained the wetlands, we've levied the rivers, we've disconnected waterways from their historical floodplains. So when we get these heavy rains, when water is flowing, how can we make a space for water to collect and then infiltrate into the ground? So this can be a water body, a pond. It can also just be a rain guard. It can also just be a little hole in the ground. Anytime that we can give some space to water and help it move into the earth, that's going to be a real win in terms of the water cycle. Now, even though all of these little actions and small design considerations are very approachable to anybody, I know that 
a lot of people that I've talked to have not taken action on this because of the regulations where they live. And those can be a real impediment, even just digging a hole somewhere, depending on where it is, it may not be allowed. You could face sanctions or fines. And I know from the stories of your water heroes that many of these people were pushing upstream the entire time, constantly facing uh, backlash from legal bodies and even surrounding communities that did not understand what they were doing. What are some of the examples of how they got past that and were able to maintain some momentum despite all of this pushback for what they're doing? Yeah, it's, it's really a shame in the sense of no good deed goes unpunished. And these people who have created incredible examples oftentimes had so many issues from the regulatory authorities. The number one thing I see in the, the people that come out on top in the end is a real relentlessness and civil courage to do what's right, to do what's right for their landscape, whether or not it abides by the laws of humans, by the laws of man. Um, and then also community support is a big piece of this. So you look at Rajendra in India. He was under house arrest. He had 72 legal cases against him by the government. You know, he was basically a wanted man in India. And not only that, these water bodies that the community had made, the government then sold the fishing rights to the water bodies that they had made. So they brought the water back, they brought the river back to life, and then the government sold the fishing rights to somebody else. What did they do? they banded together as a community. They said, this is not right. And they petitioned the government and said, you know, you don't own the fishing rights for this. We own the fishing rights for this because we created it. And so if you want to fish, you need to get rights from us, not vice versa. Um, and because it was all of the people in this whole region all grouped together, the government couldn't do anything. So when we're divided, we don't have any strength when we're acting collectively, we have incredible strength. And in fact, they can't stop us. Um, so this is a big, big reason why we started water stories in the first place. It's insane that we're asking people who are spending their hard earned money and their time and their energy on making the world a better place to also break the law in the process. That's a really big impediment. So what we're hoping is that through water stories, we can generate enough awareness, enough interest to actually rewrite policy, to generate our own shock doctrines. So when the Boulder fires come through and destroy people's houses, homes, livelihoods, we can have the policy documentation ready to say, if you don't want this fire to happen next time, you need to change the rules around people being able to infiltrate water into the ground and rehydrate the landscape. At these points in time, when you have this disaster, these crises, that's when people are motivated to act. Um, so it's really important that we start having a real coherent effort to change the policies that are in the ways of these actions moving forward. Yeah, there seems to be a general misunderstanding of infiltrating water into the ground is robbing it from people downstream, whereas it's quite the opposite. Can you talk about what the reality behind that is? Yeah, yeah. We've got this system that's so set up on scarcity where we view water that's going into the earth as a loss, a loss to the system. Um, and what we see long term is it's a huge benefit. Yes, it costs a bit of water that year in the sense of you have less runoff happening that year, but then it gives you more water every year moving forward because we can either have 
all of the water cycle really fast through the whole system and then it's all dry or we can have the water cycle again and again slowly through the system and then we have year-round water so you see this as a great example with all of our big dams and reservoirs oftentimes we actually drain the whole watershed above to get all that water going to the reservoir it all charges downhill in the spring in the runoff times the reservoir is pumping and overflowing and then later on in the year, there's no water flowing into the reservoir. The water sources are getting scarce and we end up in a really bad situation because we looked at it as we had to get all the water into the reservoir. If instead we looked at it as getting all the water into the ground, then that ground is going to be slowly seeping into that reservoir. And so even though we're taking water and using it for our cities, it's actually being recharged even several months after the rains have stopped. Um, so we have to take a little bit longer view, multiple years instead of a single year. <clears throat> but as soon as we do, we see that this actually makes more water abundance, not more water scarcity. It's a matter of fixing the cycle completely, right? Uh, that rather than having these flash floods, drought periods, and then the fires that can result from that, or depending on the, the climate that you're in, it's evening out the distribution over the year and the accessibility over the year, right? And there exactly. are some key things that you can do depending on the soil profile, depending on the shape of the landscape. There's all these different factors to consider. And depending on where you are, different techniques are going to be available to you. And I'm sure you've also seen examples of people getting a little over enthusiastic and trying to put in big installations without really understanding the engineering behind it. Why is it so important to really get to the practical considerations before jumping into just digging holes and especially putting in larger features like dams and swales? Yeah, because every landscape is so unique. Every climate is so unique. And it's really easy for us humans to find a pattern that we like and then just try and replicate it and stop thinking about whether it actually applies or not. And that's why I think this piece of going outside in the rain is so important because some soils you're going to have almost no runoff. And so if you have almost no runoff, a swale makes no sense and a water body makes no sense because all that water is going into the ground. So at that point, you want to do all the things that you can to increase the structure of that soil, increase the organic matter, increase the amount of life in it, because all of that life in its hydrophilic surfaces are storing that water when it comes. So even in a total sand soil, it can behave very different if it's a sand soil full of life or a sand soil that's dead. The sand soil that's dead is not going to store anything. Sand soil that's alive is going to store a huge amount of water. Now, similarly, if we have a landscape where you know, it's all rock. We're not going to be able to change the nature of that soil very much, but we can find areas that that water is collecting and then find ways to infiltrate it into the ground or to store it throughout the year. Um, so it's really important to not just fall in love with the techniques and think, oh, these techniques are going to work everywhere because they're not. Every technique has places that it works really well and places that it doesn't work at all or even does the wrong thing. Um, you know, another example I've seen is I've seen where people do swales and they don't actually look at the different layers. So they have, a, you know, a fairly good topsoil layer intact, and then they have a sandy dead layer below that. 
they cut a swale into that layer and now they're actually moving all the water from that topsoil into that sand layer and then losing it so they're actually taking water away from the living cycles of the soil um, so it's really important to look at what happens when it rains what happens to that water how is it handled by that soil and then come up with your techniques based on that not vice versa because it's really easy to do things the wrong way and make big mistakes or just make big investments that don't really amount to anything positive or any significant change. And what you said at the beginning too, your particular piece of land or the space that you have access to might not be the place to intervene on. And that kind of goes back to why it's so important to do this at a community level, because you don't have much say over how others in your area manage their particular parcels. And those might be the areas where intervention is the most useful or most cost-effective or whatever it might be. And so That's, making a kind of a community level plan, thinking as a, as a community and looking at the landscape as a whole is always going to be more effective, even if there are some small things you can do on your site. That's a huge, huge, huge point because there are these acupuncture points within the landscape where we can do actions and have a really effective outcome. And then there are other places where we can put all that same energy and have almost no change in outcome. Um, and that's, it's just such a great point because not every landscape is suitable for a water body. Not every landscape is suitable for everything. So you can't fall in love with this idea of, oh, I'm going to have my swales and my pond and my garden. And the reality is in the way our world has always worked is different pieces of land are better suited for different things. And then people work together in community to meet their needs shared throughout that community. Um, so we really need to start doing the same thing with water and looking at, you know, just because you want to hold water on the landscape doesn't mean you have the best place for it. And if you open your awareness a little bit, open your zone of interest, you might find that the neighbor actually has an ideal place that even you know, could gravity feed to your place and you can work some type of arrangement with them where you share a certain amount of cost and then share a certain amount of the water usage, so many different ways to do it. Uh, but it, it's really important to look at things on a watershed level. Where are you within the watershed? That's going to inform what makes sense or what doesn't make sense. Whereas if you just look within the boundaries of your own property, you're going to miss really relevant context to your situation. And I've been trying to figure out for a while since I, you and I have both traveled quite a bit, and I'm sure you've seen the difference in levels of community level connectivity around the world. And I try not to paint with too broad of a brush because of the importance of context in each place, but it seems like the lack of urgency, the relative comfort and affluence that we have in the United States or parts of Europe or you know, Australia, Canada, wherever the more affluent areas are, have resulted in a breakdown of community connectivity because we just don't need to rely on others nearly as much. And it seems that the people who make the effort, even if it's not a necessity, to establish those connections and start to work at that collaborative level are going to be steps ahead for when disaster inevitably strikes, whether it's another pandemic whether it's a natural disaster and you need someone who's got stored bottles of water or has been growing their own food or even who has a medical pack that you didn't think to get, you know. Um, but so many other communities have not been 
having regular access to the types of resources that we've gotten used to. And in order to compensate, they're very, very close. They uh, work together really well and really consider things that affect everybody else that, you know, that it involves. Is there a way that you have seen that you can start to establish that without having to go into a level of emergency first and incentivize uh, talking about what the benefits could come up, even if it's not urgent at the moment? That's a great, great, great question. Um, and, you know, I think we see it naturally arise in these crisis scenarios. You know, you look at like Christchurch during the big earthquake there. You know, you very quickly went from this community where everyone is separated and no, you're you and I'm me and screw off. I'm not going to help you to all of a sudden everyone helping everyone. And I have food, so I'm going to share it with you because you're hungry and you don't have food. Um, so I think it's, you know, it all comes from this illusion of separation where if you look big picture, we're all part of the same living organism that is Earth. Earth is this living organism and it it doesn't actually play out that what happens to me is independent of everything else it's all interconnected but we've fallen into this trap in society where we think we don't need each other even though we do because we're connected in a less direct peer-to-peer -peer way and in a more you know you could conceivably still exist without ever positively interacting with a human you could order all your food online you could have all your communication you could just live in your own little hidey hole but what does that leave us that leaves us very unfulfilled that leaves us very unhappy that feels us alone and trapped and no one enjoys that so i think there's two ways of coming about it the need is very clear and an easy way to get people to come together when there is crisis when there is need but another way is just out of wanting a happier life, wanting a more enjoyable existence, because we are innately wired as humans to live in community, to depend on one another. And when those communities, when those connections are missing, we really start to feel something is lacking. Um, so I think you see this oftentimes, too, that people come out the other end of the, you know, whatever you want to call it tech business leadership ladder and then they end up wanting to find community and something fulfilling because they realize yeah i did a lot but none of that left me feeling happy or fulfilled or like i'd done anything meaningful um so i i think there's two ways to go about it one from this position of need and another from just wanting a better quality of life and for people who are looking to kind of take that first step and get things rolling obviously you don't just jump right into doing some massive community scale water harvesting project. What have you seen as effective intermediary steps to build up to that type of capacity? Yeah. The place to start is working with your hands, working with the shovel, working with your feet, because the soil, the earth is going to reveal so many things to you that you can only get tactically. So you can feel the difference between clay and sand. And if you feel that difference enough, you can eventually see that difference. But when you're starting out, you can't see that difference. You can only feel that difference with your hands. And so if you start with a big machine, you're never really going to understand that difference and how those different materials are used for different things. Whereas if you can start by 
getting really tactical, making even just little models. Say you want to build a big water body. You have this perfect place in your property. You think, oh, that's perfect. Just need to get the machines in and do it. First, build a model. Make a little area. You know, maybe it's the size of a small room or maybe it's even much smaller. You know, maybe it's just the size of a tabletop. And actually with a shovel, with your hands, with your feet, do what you would do to create that. Then test it out. Bring a watering can or a hose. Give it a big rain. See what happens. Because it's even on a small scale, it's going to give you all the feedback you need. So then when your spillway isn't big enough and it blows out and it destroys the whole dam, it happens on this little tabletop model instead of the big version that you made and floods the neighbor's house down the hill. Um, so it's really important to, it's exciting to do these big changes with the machines, but it's not the place to start. It's only the place to go once you've developed those experiences by hand at a smaller scale. I was actually just talking with Darren Doherty about the curse and the benefits of technology in a previous interview. And it seems like all the new technology is still trying to do the exact same basic tasks that we've been trying to do either with hand tools or our own bodies, or maybe with the assistance of animals since time immemorial. However, what it is allowing now is for people who don't have the experience or the understanding of landscape to do massive projects really fast and the consequences that come along with it. And it seems like getting uh, proficiency with, you know, like you said, the tactile feedback, the analog methods allows you to establish uh, an understanding of what you're actually doing before you start playing with a scale that can go extremely wrong for having that lack of background and, and wisdom that comes from being very, closely involved with the process yeah and we see some really extreme examples too where the management decisions are being outsourced they're being made by people without a direct connection with that landscape so something i'm really passionate about and where i see the worst of this in the world is water privatization where you we now have this situation where <clears throat> we're privatizing water supplies we're trading in water futures and we're now putting the management decisions for our water resources in the hands of wealthy bankers. And what do wealthy bankers know how to do? They know how to make more money. And when you're managing water, in a water-scarce world, water is incredibly profitable. In a water-abundant world, water is not profitable at all. No one is buying that for a penny for anything. So now we have this situation where in some places in the world, the people with the management decision-making power have no connection to that landscape. They will see none of the negative consequences of their decisions, and they are incentivized to make economic decisions that actually are at a detriment to the ecosystem, to the ecology, to the communities living on that landscape. Um, and so it, you know, it's happening on a big scale and a very small scale where the people who are making these management decisions have no relation to place or understanding of place. And so obviously you're going to have really bad decisions made. That's kind of how that works. If you don't have the background and the information and the connection to make a good decision, it's not really possible to make a good decision. Yeah. And it kind of comes up with uh, something I learned through consulting in, in other places kind of far flung is that you can, go there, learn as much as possible, put in something, and it may work in the beginning. But if you don't teach the people who are stewarding that feature how to maintain it, 
how to continue to bring it into fruition. And, you know, as a consultant or as a designer, it can be hard to charge for that ongoing support that is required and to include the education in it. And I, for a while, I took quite a few steps back seeing that regardless of how good you design or install, the failure point, the, the weak link in the chain is often that maintenance. And people don't talk about that hardly at all when, you know, this, the sexy part of putting this in is doing the design and getting the machines out there and getting a group to plant everything. But it really hinges on how you manage it. And, you know, these are long-term investments and they require interaction, especially if you don't want to uh, bring in constantly more investments and having to dig out new things or put in new plantations again. Um, there is that opportunity to save money, but it is required of interaction, observation, patience, and involvement. Have you figured out a way from a business standpoint to help to bridge that gap or to make sure that they are maintained the way that you would have them? Yeah, I think it really starts with community buy-in, and that is such an important piece. And so I'm really learning more and more to um, carefully assess my projects and figure out which are the ones where people actually are going to spend the time and the energy and which are the ones where they're doing it to say that they've done it. Um, and a great example of what you just described is in India, where this movement of people restored the whole region, created all these water bodies and johads. Then the government, seeing this, wanted to take credit for the movement. So they actually came in and built some of these johads themselves, the government. They didn't talk to the community at all beforehand. They didn't figure out where the community needed them. And so you see literally side by side the exact same techniques. One is working very good. One is totally dilapidated and useless because the government never got the community buy-in. So no one uses it. No one maintains it. It's not where it would be useful for them. Um, so it's dilapidated. It's fallen into failure. Whereas the projects where the community did have buy-in are beautiful. They're incredible. It's a night and day difference, even though it's the exact same techniques, the exact same landscape, the same concept, that community buy-in is ultimately the thing that's going to determine success or failure. Um, so that's something I try and get to very early on in the process so that if I can figure out that, you know, this is a project without much buy-in from the people actually living there, it's probably also not really worth the time. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's very well said. And there are so many ways to participate in this process. Not everybody has to have their feet on the ground and be there with a shovel, although certainly that's accessible to almost everyone as well. What are some of the support roles and the things that people can do either from a distance or perhaps they don't have the ability to be out there physically in order to support these types of movements and projects? Yeah, great point. And I think that's almost equally as important as the on the ground action, as funny as it is, and it really comes down to outreach and being an advocate. You know, for example, look at someone living in a city, living in a city yeah, maybe you don't have any access to actually a piece of earth that you can do anything with. You're in a high rise up on the top levels. But what you do have access to is governance. You have unique access to all of the governance. It's always within cities. And so these people who are living in cities who want to do something, make your voice heard. Be the voice for you and for all the people doing the work on the ground out in the countryside. 
Um, so go to your town halls, go to your public meetings, be a voice for water. When people are introducing new legislation, ask what impact is this gonna have on the rivers, on the lakes, on the water sources. Ask what we're doing to recharge the aquifers that we're draining so quickly. Um, so there's really a huge, huge piece just in getting other people aware of this message, aware of what's possible, and then really as a community, making our voice heard to the governments of the world. All right, well, I think the time has come to talk about your grand vision for the future and what is possible with this community. You've set out a very compelling message in a recent video in order to launch this Water Stories community. Can you talk about what you see being the potential of empowering, capacitating new water workers and what this could lead to in the timeline that you've set out for yourself? Yeah, in the, the most ambitious, um, positive possible timeframe, I could see total climate stability within a decade pretty easily. When you look at the vast majority of the heat dynamics on earth are driven by water. We've neglected it. We haven't even recognized that we've disturbed the water cycle, that we've disturbed the temperature and heat regimes as a result of that. Um, and, you know, even irregardless of the whole climate change conversation and the temperature conversation, what we know we can do is make healthy, abundant habitats where prosperity and peace can thrive. Um, so these are the things that we can very plainly do. We can make sure that there's water sources for future generations. We can make sure that there's healthy landscapes that they will be able to grow food on. We can make sure that the ecosystems that we all depend on also have healthy landscapes to maintain their own populations, to maintain their own productivity. Uh, and, you know, we look at this movement in India that spread throughout the whole region. They went from 2% greenery to 48% greenery that lowered the temperature two degrees Celsius. So if we do this same thing all around the world, we can instantly offset all of our anticipated warming from climate change. Um, but more importantly, the flood, fire, drought that we're experiencing, we can severely reduce, almost eliminate, because those are two sides of the same coin. Because we're creating the flood, we're also creating the drought. Because we're creating the drought, we're also creating the fire. And so these natural disasters are not natural, but rather the results of our actions, of our activities. Um, and we can very quickly move in the exact opposite direction because these are feedback loops. The more we dry and desertify landscapes, the more we get flooding, the more we get drought, the more we get fire, and it goes into this death spiral. But similarly, when we work with nature, we have this never ending force that's a perpetual motion machine working in our direction. So all we have to do is set it off in the right direction and then every once in a while help it keep going. Um, so, you know, really there's no limits to what's possible. We can all live on healthy, abundant landscapes. We can regreen the Sahara, we can regreen the Fertile Crescent, we can re-American West, and we can reestablish a balanced climate. And it seems like there's a ton of very viable and attractive business options to do this as well. Like this doesn't have to be a charity effort. This isn't something that we have to go asking for handouts in order to do. 
that there is a demand for this type of work as more and more people are switched on to the importance of working with water for all of their stability needs. Can you talk about some of the business opportunities that you've seen in this? Because obviously this has been your business for, for a while now. Yeah, just huge opportunity, huge, incredible opportunity all around the world. And the reality is still most people have no idea that this is possible. So, you know, whether I'm talking to the person next to me on a bus or the taxi driver that I'm getting a ride from, as soon as they hear about this stuff, they're like, wow, I want to do this. Why isn't everyone doing this? And so it's this incredible opportunity um, to not just do something rewarding and fulfilling, but also earn your livelihood doing it. And when you can do that, I think it just gives so much power to your efforts because now you're not working your day job to then do this thing you believe about in your off time. You're working in your on time to do this thing you're believing about. And so, you know, I make a comfortable living and there's more demand for my services than I can possibly provide. Um, and the demand compared to what's possible and what it should be is still a tiny, tiny fraction. So that's really what we're aiming to do with Water Stories is create these two groups, create this new group of customers, clients, people that very much see the value in this work and want it done, um, but aren't going to do it themselves. They, you know, they believe in it, but, you know, maybe they're a retiree later in life. They're not going to get out the shovel and then connect them with trained practitioners, young people. This is the second most common question we get aside from, can you do a product? How do I learn how to do what you're doing? And how do I do that as my job, my career? And that's exactly what we make core course is basically, how do you do the job that I have? And not exactly the job that I have in the sense of there's so many ways to work with nature, to work with water. I do a lot of equipment powered earthworks, but there's a million different things that people could do to help repair the water cycle, whether that's making native and edible landscapes in cities, whether it's reforesting or establishing real forests instead of tree farms, um, you know, whether it's working in waterways, whether it's working in habitat, all these different fields all build towards the same goal. And so what we're very much trying to do is prepare people to have livelihoods doing things that they believe in, using their skills, using their abilities, using their interests, so that instead of doing something that they hate with 75% of their time, you know, they're doing something that they love with that 75%. And then sometimes they're even going to want to do it with the extra 25% like me. And sometimes they'll want to have a normal life like other people. Nah, that's forget that. <laughs> <laughs> Just burn the candle at both ends. Nice. Well, like it, much like you were saying, there is opportunity for everybody's skill set, everybody's experience to be brought into this and to make a positive change. We're only just starting to discover what the career paths uh, can be. If you're, let's say, a fantastic engineer or mathematician, or you're good at community organizing, or you work well with kids, like there is a way for you to bring your experience and your skill set to make a positive change in this and to do it uh, to make a, a very comfortable living. Can you tell us how people can find water stories and start to take steps to get this knowledge for themselves? Yeah. Yeah. Waterstories.com um, is our landing page. If people want to join the community, community.waterstories.com. 
waterstories.com is a direct access to that. Um, you can also find it through our, the waterstories.com website. And this is where we're really going to be accumulating all this information. We're going to be making all this content to get this information to everyone's heads so that if you want to be that person who's an advocate in the city, you're really well prepared. You have videos, you have presentations, you have facts and figures and everything you need to help make that story really compelling. Um, so yeah, we hope people join us. We hope people use the community to get this word of water cycle out into the general awareness. Marvelous. Well, I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, you and I have already talked about this a little bit. I plan on being on that first group of, of students that you've got for your core course. I'm really looking forward to this coming out. And yeah, let's let's stay in touch. I really am looking forward to helping to bring the awareness and the knowledge that you're putting out to the communities that I have over here and uh, helping to bring it into other language spaces as well. Yeah, definitely. That's some big thing we have planned for the second half of the year is starting to get more than just English accessible. Uh, uh, thanks so much for having me on. Thanks for everything you do. Thanks for this community that you've created here. And uh, yeah, really looking forward to working together, having you on the network, having people that are joining us on this podcast on the network. I think some really exciting things to come in the years to come. Indeed. Well, again, thanks for your time. Let's be in touch real soon. Thank you, Oliver. All right. Thanks again to Zach Weiss. I'll be posting all of the links that he mentioned on the show notes for this episode on the website where you can also find all the previous episodes from the last five seasons for free. Now, before we wrap this up, remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the ongoing conversations happening around these topics on the Regenerative Skills Discord server. It's always free to join, and it's also the easiest way to get in touch with me directly. If you're interested in helping to guide the direction and focus of this show in the future, or just get some feedback on your own projects and have some questions answered, it's all happening there. So come join the growing community of Earth Regenerators on the forum by signing up through the link on the website or through our link tree on Instagram. Now definitely stick around for the next episode in this series on building strong communities, where I'll be speaking with David Holmgren, the co-originator of Permaculture and the author of the book Retro Suburbia, about how some of our most poorly designed communities can be retrofitted for a more resilient and connected revival. You won't want to miss that one, so be sure to subscribe to this show wherever you stream your podcast from. And that's our show for this week. As always, don't forget to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.